Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And welcome to Lost in Science for another week on this special International Women's Day episode of Lost in Science. My name's Claire and for the next half hour we are going to introduce you to three incredible women. We're celebrating them as scientists, them as pioneers in their field and I'm telling you some great stories to go along with it. First up, I have a story about Maria Sibylla Marianne. She was actually an entomologist back in the 1600s. She was someone who really revolutionised the way that we thought about living creatures. Back then, a lot of people still thought that insects just spontaneously appeared. There was so this, this, this is this is pre-evolutionary theory. I mean, that's you know probably 200 years before evolutionary theory. Yeah, right. yeah. And she was one of the first people to actually look at insects and work out what their life cycle is and then document that as both um, a scientific documentation and also her illustrations, which were really, really renowned as well. Hmm. So, yeah, she's an incredible woman. Stu, what do you have? Who would you like to introduce us to today? Well, some of our listeners have probably heard of Lise Meitner, but... Many of you may not have, which is quite surprising considering the integral role that she played in the uh, early discoveries of nuclear physics. And basically she and uh, other scientists worked on projects which led to things like the atomic bomb. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So, I mean, that, that's pretty much as big it's, as you can get in the world. Yeah, of, yeah. But uh, not necessarily a great legacy, though. Well, she didn't work on the bomb personally, okay. so that was, that was one thing in her favour. And Chris, who are you going to introduce us to today? Well, I have an Australian scientist, uh, Margaret Wu, and who you also will not have heard of her. And that is because of an interesting reason that some interesting research, some new research has shown up. The reason that Margaret Wu is one of a number of women who basically contributed to important scientific research, but were not credited with it. They were essentially the uh, the calculators and the computer programmers who uh, who contributed to the work and were only thanked in the acknowledgements. And yeah, I'm looking at some recent research that uh, highlighted what happened with these women and perhaps why um, they were neglected and how things have changed or not changed over time. Join us for three inspirational stories for International Women's Day. On with the show. Now, the 1600s, you don't expect this period in time, the 1600s, to be particularly enlightened, do you? Do you? I think it was the dawn of the Enlightenment. Yeah. Maybe the dawn. I mean, sort of, but maybe not to the extent that we have today. To the oh, no. extent that no, we are enlightened. I mean, you know, the beginning of the 1600s, probably, you know, the Dark Ages still. The end, actually pretty good. <laughs> uh, like, you know, it's Elizabethan era, like in the... It finished in the early 1600s, like Shakespeare. Yeah, Shakespearean time. But, you know, Shakespeare, yeah. was, Shakespeare was writing about 
witches and you know portents and you know, right. dark spirits right. and all that demons sort of thing. Yeah. i mean and you know medicine was dictated by the four humors in your body i mean okay i mean i okay. know you dictate your medicine by the four humors in your body still chris but not like the rest of us don't not as many people have, have as much humor as me <laughs> like what are the four humors is it satire parody <laughs> yeah and a slapstick i don't know what the fourth one is puns puns I'm very rich in that. <laughs> oh, dear. Anyway, um, one of the other common beliefs of the day was spontaneous generation. So the belief that certain living things like insects were born into the environment spontaneously. It's not like they came from eggs or anything, but, you know, insects just came out of mud for no good reason. Yeah, I read. I remember reading years ago there was a, there was a, you know, accepted theory that where frogs came from mm. was that birds would be perched on branches <laughs> that would get too close to the water and when they went in the water they would turn into frogs. <laughs> yeah. The the origin of frogs. The other one is if you left bread or wheat in a dark corner somewhere, that was the recipe you got for mice. Right. That tale mice, where mice was generated. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Also and the birds didn't didn't migrate. For the, um, for the winter, they just went underwater. Yeah. Turned into frogs. <laughs> well, I guess, you know, there was no internet. How did we know what was happening on the I migratory trust path? the internet anyway, Claire. <laughs> That's true. It is probably on the internet yeah. that birds do turn into frogs yeah. for um, winter, isn't it? Anyway, it might seem a bit bizarre given what we know now, but it was a widely held belief and by a lot of great thinkers as well. Another insect that was widely held as being spontaneously generated was the butterfly. And I can sort of see how this could be misunderstood. If you didn't know the life cycle, metamorphosis would be a little bit weird. Mm. But back in the uh, 1600s, one woman made huge inroads into understanding the actual life cycle of caterpillars and butterflies and also a huge contribution to the understanding of ecology in general, which wasn't really a concept back then, through her art and her scientific practice. So Maria Sibylla Merian, she was a German woman and born in the mid-1600s. Her father was a well-known artist and engraver, and she learned how to draw from him. Um, so like many many of us out there, me myself included, she was fascinated with insects and had silkworms in her room growing up. Did you guys have silkworms? Oh, my brother did. Your no. brother did? Yeah. <laughs> Physicist. Stu, come on. No, not silkworms. I've, I found, you know, case moths and things like that and kept oh, yeah. them. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. All right. I'm sure there are some listeners out there who... Feed the mulberry leaves, don't you? The mulberry mm. leaves. Yeah, you feed the mulberry leaves. Yeah, mm. exactly. Anyway, back in the 1600s, it was somewhat taboo to draw insects as, as a scientific illustrator. Apparently, they were considered by the church to be um, spawn of the devil. In fact, there were some really strange superstitions that butterflies... Uh, were there to curdle butter and milk, which is where you get the word butterfly from. Seriously? Because it is, yeah, the, the fly the of the, the, of yeah, the butter. Right. Yeah, yeah. So that's a bit of how, entomology, etymology for you. How, why, I mean, are they found near butter? I know, it doesn't make any sense, no, given what we sense. know now. I mean, that's just superstitions, isn't it? Mm. It's weird. It's so weird. Oh, my God. Not, not based in investigation for the most part. No, no, no. 
So Maria's hobby of collecting and raising caterpillars to observe their transformation into moths and butterflies was both artistic and deeply scientific. So she kept incredible diaries of her observations, sticking strictly to recording what she witnessed um, through the raising of these insects and nothing else. So she was very scientific about it. In fact, she was quoted as saying, the only reliable approach to the study of natural phenomena is through observation. True that, huh? Say that to those superstitious butterfly people. Tell that to your theoretical physicist. (laughs) (laughs) String theory. (laughs) Exactly. So Marie was obviously hugely passionate about her work and dedicated to her scientific drawings and her process. And after two decades of observation, she published her first book. Excuse me, I'm not a German speaker. But it was Der Raupen Wunderbare Verwandlung, also um, known as The Wonderful Transformation of Caterpillars. And the book is considered the first complete description of the life of a lot of insects and also their ecological relationships. So the way that Maria depicted the insects in her artwork was not just specimens on a flat background, which was how many scientists did, but instead she showed their relationships with other animals and with plants. So she you know, really brought in this sort of idea of ecology as well. In fact, it was her drawings. It was the first time that animals, plants and insects had been drawn together and put on the page together. Wow. In a scientific way. Seriously? Yeah. Most scientists would, you know, classify each individual separately. Hmm. Hmm. Very interesting. Um, in her personal life, she was a pioneer. She freeing herself of social ties whenever she deemed necessary. So she divorced in 1685 to go with daughters to a religious commune in Amsterdam. And she was so brave in the way she challenged herself. At the time, it was very much frowned upon for female naturalists to travel abroad. So at the age of 52, she left on a trip to Suriname, which, as you both know, is in... South America. That's right. And there she collected and cultivated specimens of exotic flora and fauna. So she spent about two years in Suriname collecting insects, observing them and making her illustrations before returning to Europe to gather the results of her research and um, put it into her masterpiece once again. Uh, oh, no, this is actually Latin. Metamorphosis Insectorum Surinamensium. <laughs> It does sound like a Harry Potter spell. It does. Yes, it does. Uh, it is Metamorphosis of the Insects of Suriname. So this masterpiece established her as an incredible entomologist and she detailed life cycles of caterpillars, worms, moths, butterflies, bees and beetles. Uh, so to celebrate International Women's Day, I want us to celebrate Maria Marion for her love of nature and the importance of communicating it through art and her brave pioneering spirit. Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you are listening to A Lost in Science. This is the International Year of the Periodic Table, where the Table of Chemical Elements is celebrating 150 years since its first appearance in its current form. Well, you know, Stu, for our listeners, they would know that, seeing as we have done about three stories on the International Year of the Periodic Table. That's so right. Yeah. Or maybe Stu has done three stories. <laughs> Stu has done three stories. <laughs> yeah. He loves it. I'm not going to let you forget. He, he, he's, he's in his element. 
He's in his element. Yeah. But in recognition of International Women's Day, I thought it'd be good to have a look at a pioneering female scientist who did actually discover an element, but also something uh, even more powerful than that. Um, so probably everyone's heard of Marie Curie, which would be the obvious person to go for, the obvious woman scientist to, to name. I mean, obvious, but let's not let that detract from her achievements. But we knew it wasn't her anyway, because you said this person discovered an element. And how many elements did Margaret Curie, oh, Mar- yeah. Mary Curie discover? Um, two. Two. That's right. So yeah. there you go. Not um, an element. Elements. Elements. So she discovered radium and polonium. And she was awarded two Nobel Prizes, which is... One for each element or... No, one for chemistry and one for physics, I think. One for discovering that radioactivity exists Mm -hmm. and one for discovering um, polonium and radium. It's amazing. It is. But many people may not be familiar with an Austrian contemporary of hers called Lise Meitner, who also discovered an element, protactinium, um, but more importantly... Um, observed one of the first incidents of nuclear fission. Meitner was a wealthy woman from an intellectual Viennese family who was the second woman to earn a PhD from the University of Vienna in 1905. So basically the University of Vienna went, all right, women can come in, and then uh, Meitner was the second woman to get her PhD. She didn't really know what she wanted to study, so she sat in on lectures on physics and maths and took copious notes on those, and even was allowed by Max Planck to sit in on his lectures, yeah. uh, which was apparently unusual. Because <laughs> what? Why did did he not work there or something? No, was he, he not supposed to give lectures? He basically banned women from his lectures. Oh, what a joke! But he said uh, Lise Meitner was allowed in. Oh, wow, it's, it's really unusual for him to change because, as everyone knows, Planck's constant. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Chris. She met Otto Hahn, a chemist, at a conference on radioactive elements. At the time, people were discovering what they thought were new elements uh, all over the place. They turned out to be isotopes of known elements. So an isotope is an element with the same charge in the nucleus, but a different nuclear mass. So it basically has different numbers of neutrons, which have no charge, but do have mass. So same number of protons, different number of neutrons. So like you had like uranium-235 and uranium-238, which are two isotopes of uranium. Yeah, so pe- people were finding these things all over the place and going, I've discovered a new element, and then they looked at it and went, no, it's So it's got it's the, the same, same chemical thing. properties. Yeah. Um, so you know it's the same element, but it just has a different mass, like different weight, as yeah, you said. Yeah, different number of neutrons mm-hmm. in the nucleus. But basically, they, these people were thinking they were, they were finding new elements and then people sort of looked closely and went, no, it's the same element, it just has different nuclear mass, which is a physical property rather than a chemical property. So Meitner and Hahn and Otto Hahn uh, worked on these kind of problems for some time and numerous other scientists were playing around with neutrons to see what happened when they fired them at different substances. I can only imagine what their... Uh, workplace health and safety laws were at the time looking at some of the equipment that these people were using it's all you know valves and diodes stuck in wooden boxes to make these machines that could fire neutrons at radioactive elements and they just didn't really know what was going to happen well sometimes when you're the first to discover something you don't know how dangerous it is i guess Uh, absolutely absolutely so enrico fermi claimed he created heavier elements by bombarding uranium with neutrons and soon everyone was at it um 
Enrico Fermi did actually make heavier elements by bombarding them with neutrons. It was sort of doubted by some oh, people okay. to begin with, but eventually they went, oh, no, that, that's, that's working. And Otto Hahn had been conducting experiments along the same lines with Lise Meitner helping as basically an unpaid assistant. He didn't pay her, but he led her in the lab. Um, he did actually help her out quite a lot, but he didn't understand his results until she did some calculations. Surprise, surprise. Um, so he'd been bombarding uranium with neutrons and kept finding barium traces in his samples, which had been undetected before the experiments began. So Meitner correctly assumed that the barium, which is, has about half the atomic mass of uranium, was the product of nuclear fission. So the uranium atoms were splitting in half uh, by being bombarded with neutrons. Oh, okay. So she applied some maths to it to back it up, and she accounted for there was some loss of mass in the samples, which had been converted to energy according to Einstein's theory and the famous equation E equals mc squared. So she did all these calculations and went, here's what's happening, Otto, and Otto went, thanks, I'm going to write a paper about it. So this was in 1938, and the Second World War was breaking out as this new discovery was spreading throughout the science community. Meitner fled Vienna, and the work was basically diverted, and most scientists ended up working for the military of one side or the other in that conflict. Meitner herself refused to join the various Allied projects trying to build an atomic weapon. She thought that was pretty deplorable, she stayed in Sweden for the rest of uh, the war, and Otto Hahn travelled to the US to join what became the Manhattan Project. After the war, the Nobel Prizes got sort of put off um, during the war, but after the war, Hahn was awarded, awarded a Nobel Prize for his work. Hmm. Meitner was not, and she was supposedly very graceful about it and accepted that she was not, uh, you know, didn't publish the papers and all those sorts of things. But... She did have an atomic element named after her, mitnerium, which is uh, element 109. So, look, that might mean that her name gets remembered a lot longer than Otto Hahn's name. There is nothing wrong with your television set. Do not attempt to adjust the picture. We are controlling transmission. If we wish to make it louder, we will bring up the volume. If we wish to make it softer, we will tune it to a whisper. We will control the horizontal. We will control the vertical. We can roll the image. Make it flutter. We can change the focus to a soft blur. Or sharpen it to crystal clarity. For the next hour, sit quietly and we will control all that you see and hear. We repeat, there is nothing wrong with your television set. You are about to participate in a great adventure. You are about to experience the awe and mystery which reaches from the inner mind to the outer limits. Okay, you are listening to Lost in Science. My name is Chris, and I have a story about the Australian statistician Margaret Wu. Margaret, woohoo! Yeah. Now, you may not have heard of Margaret Wu and her work, but that's not unusual. In fact, she features in a recently published study about how women in science and their achievements have been downplayed. 
probably not a surprise to many of you. No, 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 not a surprise, really. But this is a particular like uh, example that's been, I suppose, got a bit of attention in recent years. Um, are you familiar with the the movie Hidden Figures? Oh yeah, yeah, great film. Yeah, yeah. about um, women who worked at NASA. Yeah, um, who were programmers and calculators, and they were actually computers. They were computers. That was their that, job. That yeah. was their title. Well, a couple of them were actual computers in the sense that they did the the calculations. Mm-hmm. Um, some one notably on like they got a blackboard while they're going, oh, were they going to land on the moon or not, or on Earth? I think it was. Another one of them one, was an engineer. Yes, it's true. Another one yes. was an engineer, and one of them was set up a group to do to program a computer that was um, an actual electronic yeah. computer yeah. that was brought into NASA. Yeah. Now, uh, in the apart from the people who actually did the calculations by hand, a lot of the early computer programmers were mostly women. Right. Because was it this was, at a particular time? Well, it was just like one of those kind of, I think, administrative type. It was like right. it shown in that movie. Yeah. Um, it yeah. was one of those those jobs. Now, inspired by what happened in this particular movie, um, two uh, researchers, uh, population geneticists, Emilia Huerta Sanchez and Rory Rolfs, they were wondering where all the, the women were in their field, which was, as I said, population genetics. And so they decided to look and see if there were any of these um, programmers and calculators, perhaps, who had worked in their field and so they had been um, neglected their contributions. So they set out to find out. Uh, what they did is they recruited a team of undergraduate students to look through every issue of the journal Theoretical Population Biology, one of my favourites, um, every issue published between 1970 and 1990. That's not true. It's not one of my favourites. I've never read the, the journal. I was going to say, I've never seen one on your coffee table. No, no, you haven't. No. No. Um, but anyway, they looked at this journal. Um, this is like the top journal in their field. And they looked at the names of authors and those who merely, were merely thanked in the acknowledgements of, of the papers for helping with the calculations. Um, these people they called acknowledged programmers. And the acknowledged programmers were disproportionately women. Right, right. Okay, so that was their measurement for looking at, okay, well, the women are typically going to the bottom of the pile and just being acknowledged at the end. Yeah. Like, an example is Margaret Wu. Now, Margaret Wu, um, she she did an undergraduate degree in statistics at the University of Melbourne, and after that she got a job as a research assistant in the mathematics department at Monash University um, where she taught herself programming so she could do... Um, programming on computers. And one of her jobs that she was given was helping someone called G.A. Watterson develop the eponymous Watterson Estimator. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I've, of course I've heard of that one. Well, but, uh, constantly using that for estimates, yeah. right? Okay, yeah. so I'll, I'll be frank here. When I, when I first looked up this story... Um, it was A lot of it was beyond me. I mean, population genetics is very technical. Mm. And the Watterson Estimator is... Um, okay, first of all, population genetics, like what it does is it deals with genetic differences within and between populations. The Watterson Estimator, it's kind of um, a formula, a way of working out the gene- genetic diversity in a population. So it's got various parameters that you put in and you can work out what the diversity should be. Um, it was post- published in a paper in 1975 and Margaret Wu was thanked for help with the numerical work, and in particular for computing Table 1. So that was how she was acknowledged in the paper. Now, given that, as I said, the Watterson Estimator is all about calculations and estimating parameters and this kind of stuff, actually doing all the calculations is a pretty important role. But anyway, it's still named after G.A. Watterson. Um, it's not the Wu Estimator. 
Um, so yeah, that's an example of someone who was kind of neglected and their contributions were neglected. Um, and there was yeah, quite a few of these. Now, in some, the numbers that they found were quite striking, but um, I think in one way at least they weren't as bad as the authors might have first thought. So they identified, in the papers they looked at, they identified 80 female authors. Um, they're just looking at the names and they could um, figure out whether they're male or female. So they identified 80 female authors, which was a very low proportion. It was about 7.4% of all authors. Um, but still better than the nearly complete absence of women that they kind of had initially thought there was. Mm. Um, compared to this, there were 19 women um, who were acknowledged programmers. So it's a smaller number, but they were actually 43% of all acknowledged programmers in the list. So they were disproportionately, acknowledged programmers were dis- disproportionately women. They looked at this between 1970 and 1990. Situation was particularly bad in the 1970s when 59% of acknowledged programmers were women. So they were the majority. This situation turned around a bit in the 1980s, and there are a couple of factors that may have affected the turnaround. One was that starting in about 1990, according to their statistics, nearly all acknowledged programmers were men. Um, computer pro- programming became kind of a man's game, um, leading to today's situations where it's highly paid, and people like that bloke James Damore at Google can write a memo saying how women are biologically unsuited for programming. Clearly not shown to be true by uh, history, history of computers. History or the invention of computers or the invention of programming. Exactly. Um, the other thing that happened is kind of an interesting factor, which is that gradually the number of acknowledged programmers declined overall uh, cause, because instead of hiring research assistants to do the calculations, the job was given to grad students and postdocs who, instead of getting paid for the work, they received authorship on the papers, essentially. So the, the kind of the role changed as well. Those roles, of course, then were also more predominantly male as well. So it kind of raises the question of how work today might is still kind of divvied up. So a lot of work today on research will still be done by research assistants and lab technicians, those sort of people who don't get credited as authors of the papers necessarily. And, of course, those lab technicians are often disproportionately women and people of colour. So there is still a, an imbalance there in, in current practice. It's just not shown up in the same, exactly the same way. Uh, Margaret Wu, though, um, she continued on in research. Um, she did work as a research assistant for a few more years. Um, she left for a while to have children, but she soon got bored of that. She went back to study computing. Then she got some work as a teacher. And eventually, at the age of 40, she got back into working with statistics, but this time on educational research. Uh, she did her PhD, and she has become well-known for research on the use of standardized tests for measuring student achievement. In particular, she's been an outspoken and influential critic of NAPLAN and PISA and similar mm. tests as a way of measuring student achievement. And if you look her up or you look at the Watterson Estimator on, um, on Wikipedia, it has a page about uh, Margaret Wu and her achievements. And G.A. Watterson doesn't seem to have a page on Wikipedia. So kind of she wins there, I feel. Um, <laughs> like I said, she's done a lot of work over the last 44 years. She is one of Australia's own hidden figures, if you will. That's all we have time for on Lost in Science this week for our special International Women's Day edition, celebrating women in science across the ages. And if you have stories of incredible female scientists, technologists, engineers, mathematicians, then please get in touch with us and let us know so we can take the opportunity to highlight them 
or if you are a woman working in science, please reach out to us. We would love to hear from you. You can email us at lostinsci at gmail.com. You can find us at Twitter. We are Lost in Science one That's our Twitter handle. Or find us on Facebook. We are Lost in Science on 3CR. Lost in Science is recorded in the studios of 3CR with the kind support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Thanks again for listening this week and we look forward to catching up with you next week when Stu, Chris and Claire get lost in science. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.